Well, please turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. And as I've mentioned already, we've been exploring the Ten Commandments here at First Pres for the past several weeks, and today we're at the Sixth Commandment. The Sixth Commandment, of course, is the commandment where we are called not to murder people. And you need to understand the context in which the Israelites receive this. They're people who have just been released from bondage to the Egyptians. But the Pharaoh who was leading the charge of this was a consummate racist and a consummate sexist. He was someone who hated the Israelites because they were not only people of a different religion, but they were people of a different race. And so he sought to eliminate them. And one of the ways he sought to eliminate them was by performing infanticide on the infant baby boys. This is something you see in Exodus chapter 1. That he called all the midwives in Egypt at the time to basically perform abortions on newborn baby boys. Midwives, fortunately, weren't going along with that too well, and so he called upon the whole nation to do that, to perform abortions, to perform infanticide on the newborn baby boys. And by God's grace, God releases these Israelites from bondage to these people who are seeking to destroy them in every manifestation. He brings them out of Egypt, he brings them out, he brings them on the way into the promised land. They're in the wilderness right now. In fact, that's what we see in verses 1 and 2 of Exodus chapter 20. He says that, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And what he's saying there is he's poured out tons of grace, bucket loads and bucket loads of grace to lead them out and lead them into the promised land. But because these are a people who have been experiencing so much oppression, murder, racism, infanticide, the worst of the worst things, God here is coming to them and saying, in my kingdom, in my covenant community, we're going to live differently. We're going to live in ways that build people up. We're going to live in ways that glorify me, that work according to your own design. And so that's the context in which the Israelites receive the sixth commandment here that we discover in verse 13. And it's very short and to the point. This is the commandment that we're going to look at today. Verse 13, it's the sixth commandment, and this is what it says. You shall not murder. That's our scripture passage for the day. It's straight and to the point. In the Hebrew language, it's two words. No murder. That's it. He cuts right to the chase. And if I were a betting person, I would bet that most people, whether they have any interest in Christianity or not, and many people don't, they never darken the doors of the church, they could care less about it, but one of the things you can get pretty much everybody to agree upon is that that commandment, you shall not murder, is a pretty good idea. Society doesn't flourish too well when we go around murdering people. And all sane people know this. Sane people know that it's wrong to take a human life, especially when that life has not committed any kind of capital offense. So you and I might be justifiably angry at somebody, but that doesn't give us any excuse to go away and take their lives. As relativistic as our culture is, there's a common consensus that murder is wrong. But I think we're still confused about this in our culture today, and even in the church Because in America, murder is so pervasive, violence is so pervasive, it's almost like we're numb to it. I mean, when was the last time you turned on the local news and you saw a murder, a story about a murder, and that really moved you, really kind of shook you to the core? We we turn on Fox News around the the world in 80 seconds, and in 80 seconds you see 
Hundreds of people in the Middle East being butchered. Thousands of people being killed for one reason or another somewhere in Asia. This happens all over the world and it all comes to us in 80 seconds and that's supposed to somehow move us. And it really doesn't. It really doesn't at the end of the day. We're confused about that. And our whole and because that's the case, because it's so pervasive, there's a sense, an underlying sense, I think, in all of our lives to where we begin to dehumanize people. We begin to fail to see that people are people with intrinsic value, intrinsic worth. And so we're not only desensitized to murder, but we're also confused about what it really is. I mean, what constitutes murder? In November of 2008, we elected a president who's so far nominated two justices to the Supreme Court of the United States who are proponents of abortion rights and who insist on taxpayer funding of things like Planned Parenthood. But at the same time that that was happening in 2008, voters in the state of Washington joined with the state of Oregon in legalizing euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide. And this is the way in which our underlying presuppositions in life end up manifesting itself in the world. Our laws are confusing about murder, aren't they? If a drunk driver makes his way down Highway 90 and crashes into a woman who is pregnant and kills her and her unborn child, he gets brought up on two counts of manslaughter. But if the woman would have gone earlier in the day and had that child aborted, she's perfectly within her legal rights to do so. There's no legal repercussions whatsoever. And if necessary, if she doesn't have the funds to do it, her abortion can be covered by your tax dollars. So that's the world in which we live in. We get into ridiculous debates about when a person becomes fully human. Is it at the point when their brain waves start to start going or their heartbeat starts to come into being? But the reality is, is that at the moment there's fertilization that takes place, we know that that child has full human DNA, that that child is growing, living. Pure science alone tells you that, but we get into these debates in our culture all the time. Look, I think that you and I believe that we are significant people. You believe, at least, that you have value. But I wonder why you believe that. Why is it that you and I believe that we have value, that we would be offended if someone tried to come and take away our life? You know, if, if Darwin was right, and all that we are are just highly evolved globs of cells and molecules and things like that, and if when we die, all we do is change back into chemicals again, I wonder what basis you and I have to say that we are significant, or that our neighbor is significant, and, and has any worth. On what basis do we have dignity, and value. Why, why are we more valuable than animals? Is it, is it just because we're more highly evolved? I think if that's the explanation, then we don't really have a leg to stand on to say that you or myself or anybody else has dignity or has worth. I think that the only way in which you can arrive at that position, something that you already believe about yourself, is by looking at what God reveals to us. Because there's something that God reveals to us. He, he reveals that Every single human being, whether they are young or old, black or white, male or female, whether they're a star athlete or whether they're confined to a wheelchair, whatever their condition is, everybody, everybody has intrinsic worth, intrinsic dignity. 
they, they, have, they have a native value to them. And the reason why is because you can't get any farther than page one of the Bible to discover that everybody is created in the image of God. That means that there's something about God that is ensconced on every individual. In, in one way or another, however dimly, everybody is reflecting God to some extent. They reflect what God is like. You see it in Genesis chapter 1. He says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And because we're created in the image of God, then he goes on to say that we're to have dominion over what he has created. That, that, that we rule it and we subdue it and we use it for the sake of our good and for his glory. And then he goes on to say in verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1, he says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That is, that is mind-blowing for most cultures and most places in the world today and even within the church. That man and woman have been created equally in the image of God, having the same dignity. We have the same dignity. And we live in a world that has primed us to think differently than that. We live in a world that has primed us to value people on the basis of what they look like, on the basis of what they accomplish, on the basis of what it is that we have to offer. And that's oftentimes how we value ourselves. We value ourselves on the basis of our appearance, on the basis of our accomplishments, on the basis of what it is that we've done. But God comes at us here in Genesis chapter 1 and he says, no, you're valuable because you're my handiwork. You're valuable because I have knit you together in your mother's womb. You were valuable before your mother even knew you were, that she was pregnant with you. You're valuable because my image is stamped on your very being. That's why you have worth, because you're created in my image. You know, I think at the bottom of all of your insecurities and my insecurities is this sense that we are fundamentally worthless people, at least in comparison to others. We we feel insecure because we feel like we're not doing something good enough. We're not, we don't look the right way. We don't do things the right way. We're, we're not sophisticated enough. That's why we feel insignificant. And then we end up projecting that onto other people. We treat people poorly. We tear them down in our words and in our actions and even in our thoughts by at worst thinking that they are fundamentally worthless or at best just thinking that they have flaws that almost make them subhuman or less than us. So one of the ways that we commit murder towards people without ever pulling the trigger and give expression to our insecurities is by projecting our insecurities onto them and by maximizing their vices and minimizing their virtues. That's one of the ways in which we do it. It's how we do it without ever killing somebody at all. But see, God gets us to confront that. He gets us to confront that right at the very beginning because he's saying that we all have dignity and worth because we're created in his image. We mirror him as we live. And that's why murder is such a gross sin. That's why it's such a gross thing because when you murder someone, when you tear someone down in one capacity or another, you're destroying the, image, the, the life that God has created in his very image. You're destroying something that you have no right to destroy. It doesn't belong to you. 
When you get to Matthew chapter 5, and this is something that we're going to explore in a couple weeks after Easter, one of the things that you discover is that murder really begins in the heart. It's, it's a heart-level thing. The, 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 the root of bitterness, the grudges, the anger that we have towards someone created in the image of God begins in the heart. You know, people don't just wake up in the morning on the wrong side of the bed and just decide they're going to go murder someone that day. That's not the way that it works. It works by having a deep-seated root of bitterness and rage and anger that rises to the surface when pressed. And the Sixth Commandment exposes that. And it calls us not to live that way. It calls us to live with a transformed heart that's received the grace of God and that lives amongst our brethren, our people in the church and outside of it, our neighbors, in ways that express love to them rather than dehumanize them. There's, this is something that we're going to explore much more fully after Easter, but I think that there are a, a lot of things in our social context and the world in which we live in that we kind of need to explore as we figure out how we're going to bring glory to God and live in light of who He is in the context that He's placed us. And there are just two things that I want to look at together this morning. There's a, probably a hundred of them that we could look at, but I'm just going to focus on two of these things. One of the practical contemporary issues that we can pull out of the Sixth Commandment is that the Sixth Commandment is prohibiting a lot of the isms we have in our life. Racism sexism, classism, all those things that are so prevalent in our culture. And when I'm talking about racism, for instance, I'm talking about qualitatively viewing one race as superior to another or one gender as superior to another or one class of people as superior to another class. And that's not to deny that there are real differences between all of those groups of people. There's real differences between male and female. There's real differences between black and white. And we're all equally depraved, maybe in our specific ways, but we are all equally valuable under God because we're all equally created in His image. You know, the Sixth Commandment, it prohibits murder. But it also prohibits thoughts and, and words and actions that dehumanize other people, as individuals and as whole classes of people who've been created in his image. And that's why racism is such an ugly thing. It's something that ought to have absolutely no place amongst the people of God. You know, racism, it's one of the last remaining sins that our culture actually recognizes. And because that's the case, hardly anyone will ever admit to being a racist. But I want to suggest to you that everyone, everyone, regardless of their race, has some sense of racial hostility and some sense of racial superiority. We're really quick to recognize racism in other people, but we're slow to recognize it in ourselves, and that's just like all sins. We're easy, we easily recognize that in other people. We're slow to see it in ourselves. But for the Christian, the opposite should be true, shouldn't it? I think instead of pretending ourselves by fooling ourselves that, that this is not a part of our lives, I think that we need to own whatever racism, whatever sense of class hostility that we have, I think we need to own that. We need to 
call it what it is and we need to bring it to Christ for forgiveness. We need to ask Him to work His power in us to be repentant people. So we'll turn away from it and turn toward Him and live as people who are embracing one another rather than pushing one another away. Building these walls that were never meant to be built in the first place. You know, this is part of our collective history, my friends. No one's immune to this. This is part of the history of the church. Many of you will, will remember the day when elders and deacons would stand at the front door of the church. And of course they would greet the church as they came in the door that Sunday. But they were also there in many cases, in many cases, to make sure that black people didn't enter the church. That happened. And some of you remember that. Just this past week, just this past week, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a poll that came out that indicated that 46% of Mississippi Republicans think that interracial marriage should be illegal. 46%! That's astonishing! But it's going on in our state. It's going on in the church. That they believe that it should be illegal. That if a black man and a white woman go to the courthouse to get a marriage license, they should be denied that. And if they get married, despite that, there should be legal action taken against them. 46% of the Republicans in our state believe that. That's racism. It's to the core. And it's ugly. Why would someone believe that? Is it at all possible that when a white man and a black woman have a child together, the racial purity gets destroyed? It's what people believe. People who claim to follow Christ, my friends, need to fight against that. We need to not suck that right out of the straw and make it something that we imbibe because it's part of our culture. We need to work against dehumanizing people, tearing them down, valuing people on the basis of what they look like, on their culture. That's bogus. It has no business being part of the Christian life. And we need to be on the front lines of embracing people who differ from us because we're created in the image of God. We're the only people who have a basis for doing so because we understand that, that we've been created in the image of God. And this is a gospel principle, my friends. It's a gospel principle. Because what you see Jesus doing all the time, especially in the Gospel of Luke, is you see him coming to people who are not just like the cookie-cutter people who they would be expected to be. He goes to the, to the woman at the well, a woman who's had five husbands. He goes to the Samaritans, people of a different race. He goes and he brings the Gospel to them. And he, what he's saying is that the Gospel is so big that it extends to everybody who will believe. He goes and extends love to people regardless of what they're like. That's why in Acts 1.8 he says that you will be my witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth because the gospel transcends race, it transcends class, it transcends gender, all of that stuff. And Christians have the basis for this. I wonder if you've considered your heart in this matter. Because murder isn't just an external action. It's something that begins with the heart. 
You know, what's your disposition towards people who are different than you? I think this is one of the things where you do what the psalmist said, where he says, he prays to God and he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the heart of someone who acknowledges that there's something wrong with him or her and that he or she is in need of serious grace in need of God to stir up repentance in there. You, you come to God admitting that there's a depth to your depravity and that you have this heart toward other people and you need a new heart. You know, stra- strangely enough, as I mentioned, so many people in Mississippi believe that interracial marriage should be illegal. And then at the same time, Mississippi leads the, the United States of America in interracial marriage. I don't understand that contradiction, but it's the reality. In Harrison County leads the state of Mississippi in interracial marriage. We're number one in something. A good thing. But maybe it makes you uncomfortable. You're out to dinner and you see a black man and a white woman having dinner together or walking hand in hand on the beach. There's something about that that makes you uncomfortable. What's at the bottom of that? I don't know. I can't explore all that for you, but that's something that you need to do business with God about. And ask him to, just ask him to lead you out of that darkness so that you will begin to embrace people the way that Jesus Christ embraced them in the gospel, living in love towards them because they're beautifully created by God and in his image and valued because of that. That's some heavy stuff. I have one more heavy thing to bring to you. This might even be a bigger deal. <laughs> So buckle your seatbelts. There's a racist and sexist heart involved in murder, and it's no small thing. But I think that closely linked to this is the issue of abortion. And I, and I can't avoid this issue because it's so pervasive in our culture. The whole abortion industry is built on racism. It's built on eugenics, which is a byproduct of Darwinism, a byproduct of an atheistic understanding of human origins. It's built upon the idea that you improve the genetic composition of the human race by eliminating those who would pollute it. It's the philosophy that drove the Holocaust. And so it's not an overstatement to say that the roots of the modern-day abortion movement are aimed at eliminating the poor and minorities, but it's all disguised in a woman's right to choose. In New York City alone, most progressive city in America, 41% of pregnancies end in abortion. 41%. Last week, I read a column by a guy named Joe Carter. He writes for a magazine called First Things. And he was writing about this group of abortion clinics in Pittsburgh known as the November Gang. And what the women were asked to do who had come there to have an abortion, they were asked to write their feelings about that on a pink piece of paper that was cut out in the shape of a heart. Here's what one woman wrote. She said, Women... This is your life and your body. 
What you think is right is, no matter what anyone else has to say about it. And if you think that this is a sin, remember, God forgives. That is cheap grace for you. Another woman wrote this about her aborted child, or to her aborted child. This is what she said. I did not let your dad know about you simply because I'm ashamed. In my heart, I will miss you, but physically, I don't have the means to take care of you or your older sister. I will never label you a mistake because God obviously thought you should have been here, even though I beg to differ. Here's the last one. This woman writes, This may sound strange, but I felt I knew the being I was carrying. I felt he was my son. I even called him Ernesto. And Ernesto was my reminder that my life was significant and that having an abortion was putting my life first. I know it was really about me, about promising myself that now I get to be super thoughtful about my life, super intentional, and that's what the last five years since the abortion have been about. Did you hear that? What you think is right is. God obviously thought that you should have been here even though I begged to differ. The arrogance of that statement. I know it was really about me. That's just an unhinged culture of death that we live in, that that's somehow okay in our world. But what Joe Carter talks about in his article is that it's not so much that we live in a culture of death, it's that we live in a culture of me. That's what murder is all about. It's about the culture of me. He says, the culture of me can accept an unborn child being ripped from the womb, but having hurt feelings about such actions are unacceptable. And friends, that sums up all murderous thoughts, attitudes, feelings. It sums up our attitudes towards abortion, towards race, towards all these different things. It sums up all the dehumanizing things that we do. The ways in which we hold grudges and hold people in contempt. The ways in which we become defensive and gossip about people. It's all about the culture of me. It's about pursuing what we have already told ourselves that we have to have in order to make our life valuable. And we'll do so even at the expense of another person. I mean, only a complete narcissist can say that it is good that you not exist. It's good that you are not here. It's what the abortionist and the racist says clearly, but it's what all of us say every time we tear down another human being. Every time we hold bitterness, anger, rage in our hearts against someone else and have failed to seek reconciliation. Some of you are wondering, this abortion thing, it's such a huge problem, but what can I do about it? I mean, there are a million unborn children every year in America that are aborted. But what can I do about that? Here are just a few things. One thing is, we have to be aware that we need to take a stand on this. If we lived in Biloxi in 1830, and we turned a blind eye to the fact that in our state, people were held as slaves, that the children of black men and black women were taken apart from them, that husbands and wives were ripped apart, 
that massive abuse, rape of women, all these horrible things were being done to slaves in our state. And we just sat around doing this and said, boy, that's a shame. We would be woefully negligent there. If we lived in Germany in the, eight, in the 1940s and we turned a blind eye to the fact that millions of Jews were being annihilated in our country and we just turned a blind eye to that, we would be woefully negligent. And if we turn a blind eye to the fact that a million unborn children every year in America are being aborted, I think we're being negligent in that. I think this ought to affect the way in which we vote. And you know I hardly ever talk about politics. I don't think it's appropriate to do so. I think that politics is a very vague thing and people of goodwill can be on many different sides of political issues. I don't think that's appropriate in the church. But this is a place where our faith intersects on this issue. And I think that we don't stand on neutral ground when we go to the voting booth. It ought to affect the way that we vote. You know, when, when Hitler was reigning in Germany, he was doing some pretty good things for the German economy at that time. The only problem is that he killed six million Jews. There's not a moral equivalence with our economy and what's going on with the murder of a million unborn children every year. There's a difference there. They're not morally equivalent things. This ought to affect the way in which we vote, the way in which we live as political beings. I think it ought to affect our prayer life. When was the last time you prayed that this would end? I, the only reason why it hasn't been a long time for me is because I knew I was preaching on this this Sunday. Other than that, it's been a long time because there's fatigue that sets in. But what Paul calls us to do in 1 Timothy 2 is to pray for our governing authorities. Pray that there would be change. Another thing you can do is you, you can support your crisis pregnancy center. It's one thing to stand against death, but it's another thing to stand for life. In one way or another, how can you support that? That's a thing that you could possibly do. And another thing that you can consider is actually adoption. I can't bind your conscience to that, but I'm so thankful to see that the church has taken a stand on this, that so many Christian parents have decided that they are going to adopt a child. A 16-year-old pregnant girl has the choice of giving that baby up for adoption, aborting it, or keeping it. And neither one of those three options sound particularly good to a 16-year-old pregnant girl. But what if the church takes a stand on this and brings a child like that into their homes? It's a beautiful thing. Our theology even drives us to this, doesn't it? Because the fact of the matter is that we're all adopted in here. Every single one of us who knows Jesus Christ, we're adopted. He chose us to make us His children when we were orphans. That's how we can stand for life. It's a quick final thing I want to mention before we wrap it up. This is a hard thing I know for some of you to hear because it's very likely in a room of this size that there are people here who have had an abortion. Or it's very likely that you're a man who has paid for or encouraged a girlfriend or a wife to have one and it is the biggest skeleton in your closet that there is, and nobody knows about it, but it still eats you up. And if that's the case, I want to say this with the most clarity and the most compassion that I possibly can. I, 
I hope if that's you, that you understand that you're a person that is in need of God's forgiveness. That you, that you need that. And I hope that you deeply feel and know that. But I also hope that you know that the God of the Bible is in the forgiveness business. That's what He does. Your sin, my friends, is not beyond the grace of God. God forgives murderers. Paul was a murderer. David was a murderer. Moses was a murderer. And he forgave those people. He cast their sins into the depths of the sea and he remembers it no more and he no longer holds it over their head. He no longer dangles it as leverage against them. And my hope is that you can be that person too who comes to see us, especially as we consider this week, as we, as we look at a murderous cross, that our Savior was the victim of murder, that in being that victim of murder, God made him to be sin who knew no sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. The only people that Jesus will receive are murderers. It's the only people he'll he'll receive. People who will not admit to being a murderer are people who are going to stand on their own merits and they're going to fail to see that they are murderers. We all have this in our hearts. We all need his grace. And his grace extends to everyone who will believe. He won't turn away anyone who will believe, even the person who is bearing the guilt of that abortion or that awful thing that you've done. The key is to own it for yourself. Bring it to the cross. Beg Him for forgiveness and know that He has given it to you. And when you can rest assured in that, what freedom you have to be released of the guilt and the shame. What freedom you have to give thanks for your that God had value on your life and to give dignity to others. And if that's not something you yet believe, my friends, consider it an invitation to do so. Let's pray. Father, these are these are words that are that are hard to swallow, they're hard to palate. But we need to hear them. And they just remind us of the depravity of our souls. We, we think we get a pass on this because we've never taken anybody's life. But we see at the bottom of it all that our hearts are deceitful, but that your grace is amazing. God, let us take a look at that grace. Take a look at the beauty of the cross to know that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And to stand gloriously complete in Jesus Christ. This we pray in his name.